I want to preach this morning in a way that opens up the flow of water in your life so the gospel can go to others as well. Okay. And so the title of my preach is The Sovereignty of God for the Sake of the Gospel. And we're still in Acts, and we're still in Acts chapter 4. We will eventually move on from here, but for now we're still here. And so we're going to read this passage of Scripture again. So give the Word of God your undivided attention as I bring it. Verse 25, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit, they're praying now, through our ancestor David, your servant saying, why are the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against, against His Messiah. In fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas and Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand according to your will. And now, O Lord, hear their threats, and give us your servants great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After this prayer, the meeting place shook, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit when they preached the word of God with boldness. There's, there's two verses in that passage. Oh, it's such a rich passage, but two verses that when you read it, you kind of want to go back and read again because you're not sure you understood it properly. And there's verses 20, um, 27 and 28. In verse 27, he's saying this was the, the death of Jesus and all of this that's going on is, be, is, the, is the fault of um, Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles and these Jewish leaders all conspiring together. And when Peter preached a similar message in Acts chapter 2, he points his, I, I'm guessing the pointing of the finger, it doesn't say he did this, but he did say this. He points his finger, Rob says, and the Bible says, and said this, you killed him. He's not letting anybody off the hook. He's saying it's your responsibility. You'll be held accountable. You need to ask for forgiveness. And then in verse 28, it says something that seems to contradicts it completely. It says this, but everything they did, all of these evil, wicked dudes, was determined beforehand according to your will. So which is it, Lord? Is it, is it the free will of men that they acted and they're responsible in the way they acted? Or is it the sovereignty of God that predetermines what happens? And these two things are actually seen throughout Scripture. The sovereignty of God on the one side and the free will of man on the other. They both coexist. They both lifted up in Scripture. One doesn't override the other one, it seems, although for us and our thinking, they seem to contradict each other. So what, someone might argue, what difference does it make? What can I do if you determined ahead of time that I was going to be hard-hearted or I was going to be Judas or whatever it is? When Charles Spurgeon, he was one of the great preachers of the last century, was asked, how do you reconcile these two truths? He said, he said I love that he said this. He says, I, don't, I didn't know that friends needed reconciliation. You see, what he's saying is that these are both the truths of Scripture. They're not fighting each other. The truth of Scripture here and the truth of Scripture here are not warring against each other like the love and the justice of God doesn't war against each other. Both are true. And he says, he gave this illustration, he says it's like the trains of a track that run like this. So you know, if you look down a, a railway track, you have the, the one track that runs here and the one that runs parallel to it. They, they separate, but as you watch them, as you look at the, if the train tracks run straight, as they go towards the horizon, you'll see them come together like this. And he says, these two things run separately now, but they come together in eternity. In eternity, God will show us how these two things go together. 
And so as Christians, we need, a, we need a strive to live in a way, because Christianity is not, um, it's not attending church on a Sunday. Christianity is not the way that we dress or, you know, some weird little extra pieces of our lives. Christianity is everything and all that we are. We have to strive to live in a way that upholds both this truth about the sovereignty of God and this truth about our responsibility and our free will. One of the reasons why some people react completely against the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, and they do. There are people that teach that it's actually all about us, our authority, our responsibility. If we don't do it, it doesn't get done, etc. It's because they're trying to explain away the presence of evil and wickedness. You see, if God is sovereign, if he, and, and by that word we mean that He's almighty, He can do all things, He can do whatever He wants. If He is sovereign, why is the evil and wickedness in the earth? How do we explain those things away? And for some people, this is not theory. They're not, for many of us, it's not ivory tower working through the theory of this, you know, like you're studying some stuff at school and you're thinking, oh, Jesus, when will I ever use this, you know? When will I ever use algebra once I leave school? Never. I want to just tell you, never. You'll never use it, kids. I'm just letting you know that now. But, um, but we ask the same question. This, when we, ask, we talk about this, this is real. Some people have been hurt. Some people have, have faced severe injustice and they say, God, why didn't you stop it? Why didn't you stop that thing happening? Why didn't you act in this way so that could happen? Why have we got this brokenness all around us? And so when someone speaks with such certainty about the sovereignty of God, as I'm going to quote Jerry Bridges in a moment, it can almost create more questions than answers to us. And this is what Jerry Bridges says. He says, no plan of God can be thwarted. It's a great definition of sovereignty. No plan of God can be thwarted. When he acts, no one can reverse it. No one can hold back his hand or bring him to account for his actions. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, and works out every event to bring about the accomplishment of his will. And even Jerry Bridges admits that when he says something like that, it can create, like, um, it can be disconcerting or confusing for some people. And so he goes on to say that we, even as we say this, we know some other truths about God as well, that He is loving and that He is just. And so another theologian by the name of Sebastian Richards says this, we often make the, gra the grave theological mistake of equating the sovereignty of God and everything happening on the earth realm as being His will. So he says it's a mistake when you think every single thing that happens is the, the will of God. And then he goes on and says this, God always ends up getting his way on the earth. So is that a contradiction? And I think the key there is in the end, God always ends up, ends up getting his way. Ultimately, God's will will be done. And uh, um, one of the ways that things that really helped me understand this was a, an, an essay I read some years ago by C.S. Lewis, who's a, one of the great Christian authors. If you've never read any, any of C.S. Lewis's stuff, you're missing out, and I mean that genuinely, is, is one of the most um, articulate, clear writers. He writes things, and you read it, and you go, man, that's amazing. I now understand it, but you, you can't explain it. Like somebody comes to let me tell you this, and just read C.S. Lewis, and he'll explain it to you, you know. Anyway, C.S. Lewis writes this essay about the sovereignty of God, and in it he asks this question is, what is the most fundamental character trait of God? So some, some people go, well, the most fundamental character trait is his love. Some people say it's his justice. Some people say, as we've sung tonight, his faithfulness or whatever it is. 
that many in the church would say it's his sovereignty. Especially Reformed theologians, strongly Reformed theologians would say it's his sovereignty. The one thing is that God will have his way. And even if it seems unjust, it doesn't matter because God will have his way. And even if it seems unloving, it doesn't matter because God will have his way. And C.S. Lewis argues against that because he says, like, um, we were created in the image of God. And so when something, like, irks us and we can't find, it just seems so unjust. We can't just get over it by saying, well, God's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. And so he goes back and says, well, what is the most fundamental um, characteristics of God? And he says, and he speaks about the time before God created. So there was a time, we obviously understand, before there was the heavens and the earth that God created. There was a time before we were around, before any humanity or plant life or animals existed in this universe or any universe um, and has been often seen now in the movies in the multi-universes. There's no such thing. But I just want to say, even if there were, even, that was created by God and even before all of that. And even before the angels and the spiritual beings that exist around the throne of God, even before those were created, in eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existed alone. And when the Father, and they were not alone because they had each other. They had perfect union, perfect fellowship. They needed nothing else. And when they existed in this place of perfect union, there was, God was not sovereign because He had nothing to be sovereign over. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had all the the attributes of sovereignty. They were almighty. They had the power to do whatever they wanted, but they didn't need to be sovereign over anybody or anything because they only had each other. God was with God in perfect fellowship in that time. But what they did have was love and justice. And so God the Father loves God the Son, and God the Son loves God the Father, and the Holy Spirit loves the Father and the Son, and so on. And they love each other in a just and integrous way. The Father never lies to the Son. They never, the Son never tries to usurp the Father. There's this perfect existence of justice and love. And so we can say that the most basic characteristic of God, like peel everything or even creation away, God is love and God is justice. And then God creates. He makes us. He weaves together these incredibly beautiful people that you see sitting around you and some averagely looking, I'm not going to point out who they are, but most of you are beautiful looking, um, people around us like this, and God is sovereign over us. He creates angels, and He's sovereign over the angels. He creates the universe, and He's sovereign over the universe, and He creates us. And so um, God is um, sovereign that way. But then He restrains the sovereignty to allow those that he's created to respond to him in love. I'll give you an example of this. When my children were small, especially when they're small, a little bit now still, but especially when they were small, I was sovereign over them. I ruled over their lives. Linda and I would decide if they ate or they didn't eat and what they would eat and what they wouldn't eat. We would decide when they would go to bed and even when they would wake up. It's not time to wake up, go back to bed again. We would decide where they lived where they went to school. We were making all of these decisions over their lives. We were, we were acting, and I, I, not applying in any way this God thing, but, but we were acting as an illustration of sovereignty towards our children. As much as I had that control over them, I would restrain my sovereignty, especially as they grew older, to allow them to make choices, even bad choices, so they would grow in maturity, but also relate to me in the way of love. I could have held my children like this for their benefit, like controlled them to the end, but they would, they would, they, I would have turned them either into robots or into rebels if I had done that with them. And God knows that with us too. He's created us in His image of everything else that He's created, 
Only we were created in His image. We are persons like He is a person. We're not the same kind of person, but we are both persons. And so He wants us to relate to Him in that way. And so God holds back. And there's just one exception with my children, and that's in the, in the areas of death and destiny. So my children, as they grow older, I give them increasing freedom to make their own choices. There will be times where my children, I don't know if they ever said this to me, but they certainly would have thought this, I'm sure, I don't love you or I hate you or something like that. Might have gone through their minds. I hope not. But they're free to have those thoughts and process those thoughts. But when it came to an issue of their lives or their destiny, those were areas, as far as it's in my control, I would step into. If my, one of my children wanted to do something that would seriously put their life at risk, I would step in and, and, and stop that thing taking place. If they were to do something that would seriously impact their destiny, their calling, their, who they were to become, they would, 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 like if they were going to marry the wrong person, it's harder for me to stop in there. But if I had control there, I would say, no, that's the wrong person. Do you know what I mean? But I'm not in control all the time. I'm not there when Hannah's driving in the car in, San, in wherever it is in L.A., um, I can't be there to, to, to save a life at the moment, but God is always in control. And friends, He is there for the things that are death and destiny matters for us. He does intervene. On everything else, He opens His hands. And so we begin to see that there are things that are happening in this world that are not within the bounds of His perfect will, but are within the bounds of His permissive will. I want you to see the difference. They're not within the bounds of His perfect will, but are within the bounds of His permissive will, and ultimately will accomplish his perfect will, even evil. To quote a Sri Lankan theologian by the name of Ajit, Ajit Fernando, he says, God turned the crucifixion of the Son of God, the biggest evil ever committed, into something glorious. If his sovereignty has been expressed in history, there's nothing to prevent us from believing that it will be expressed in eternity. One day it will be revealed that the very existence of evil has turned out, it's been turned into something good. And so let's go back into the shoes of those believers that are praying on this, whatever day it was. Let's say it was a Saturday they were praying just for the sake of a day. They're praying on this Saturday. Their Lord and Savior was crucified and now they're praying and saying, God, we know it was your will for him to suffer and die like that. They understood that the, the suffering and the injustice the, the, it was temporary, but God was accomplishing something of His redemptive story, His saving story in the city and in the world. Now those same authorities were threatening them. You need to stop preaching, otherwise we are going to come against you. Peter and John would be beaten in the next chapter. James was killed a couple of chapters after that. Many of them would lose their businesses. They were scattered from the cities, the city they'd grown up in and, and, and spread across all over the region. This is real stuff that's going on. And maybe you facing some real trials. Maybe some of the things that you felt God promised you have not come to pass. Maybe you're enduring like this transition between one season and the next. And it's like, I don't know how I'm supposed to get through there. How, do we, how can we be fruitful in this season if, by holding together the sovereignty of God and, the, and our understanding of our responsibility as well? Four things. Number wood. Number one. Number wood. <laughs> I'm doing wood, steel, or whatever. Number one, we are not God. I know that's a shocker for some of you. I know some of your parents, your children, if they were to know this, they would be utterly shocked that they were not God. They think by your parenting style that they are God. And uh, I want to say, one of the jobs you have is to teach your children, and it's a really important job, parents, I want to tell you this, to teach your children that they are not God. And I'm going to give you a tool, 
It's an unbelievable tool to use to help your children know that they're not God. And maybe if, you want to, if you're taking notes, you want to write this, this tool down because it is so important. It's actually just one word. It's no, no. And then back it up. I've heard so many parents say, no, Johnny, not, uh, not the Johnny. Johnny always gets my name. No, Johnny, no, Johnny, no, Johnny. Oh, okay, Johnny. Like, that's not parenting. Get on with the job of teaching your children they're not God. We are not God, and His ways are not our ways. And uh, the most obvious text, obviously, about that is Isaiah 55, verse 9, which reads like this. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, the way that we measure things is we, we take our, our limited understanding of things and we say, okay, let me measure the season in my life. Let me measure my life. Let me measure somebody else. Let me measure this trial, this injustice, this whatever it is. We're gonna, I'm going to take the, the ruler of Rob's intellect and put it down to measure this thing. But Paul says in um, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3 and 4, um, that it matters, he says this, it matters, ver- uh, it matters very little to me what you think of me even less where I rank in popular opinion. I don't even rank myself. Comparisons in these matters are pointless. I'm not aware of anything that would disqualify me from being a good guide for you, but that doesn't mean much. The master makes that judgment. And so friends, we've got to allow God to come into our lives and be the one that uses the measuring ruler. And you won't get the measure of it, Paul saying, until the master comes, until he goes to be with Jesus. That's when he's going to get the final assessment of his life. He wants to live faithful. He wants to live strong, but he lets God measure it. And God's ruler is not the same as our ruler. There's an example of the woman who comes and brings the, the, the two mites and puts it in the offering basket. And at the same time, this man comes with a bag full of money. He puts a bag full of money in the offering basket. And then Jesus says something that every accountant, is, their eyes roll in their head when they hear Jesus say this because he goes, um, that woman gave more than that man. Now, I used to be an accountant. Jesus is blatantly wrong. The man gave more than the woman. A bag full of money is more than two small coins. Jesus, you are you're categorically wrong. And yet he says to me, but Rob, you're using the wrong calculator. You're using the wrong ruler to measure this moment, what's happening at this time. I want to say to you, friends, when you bring up your offering on a Sunday and you put it in the basket, don't forget that God's measuring what goes in there. He's not, he's not about the same measures that, that we are. He doesn't measure us by the fancy car that we have or the big house that we have or, or how confident we are in preaching the Word of God from a pulpit. Who we are and our contribution is measured by Him, and only He gets to decide what's good enough. One of my favorite stories is about a guy called Henry Nguyen, and he was this Catholic teacher, lecturer. They would go around the world commanding great audiences. People would sit there waiting to hear him teach. He was, he was apparently an incredible gift. And then one day he went to a visitor home of, um, where there were mentally um, uh, challenged or damaged people in this home that were being taken care of. And he was sitting in the office of the guy that ran the home. And behind him was a, was a Rembrandt's, a copy of Rembrandt's, Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son. And in this painting, the prodigal's kneeling at the father's feet like this with his torn clothes and his br- one sand- foot without a sandal, the other foot with a broken sandal. And the father's hands are on the, on the son kneeling like this. And just behind, Rembrandt is painted into the shadows in the dark, the older brother. You just see a portion of his face sticking out from the shadows like this. And Henry Nguyen sat there like this as God began to just do some business in his heart. 
<coughs> and he realized he's the older brother, not the son that's being loved by the father. He's being driven by performance. He's, being, he's, just, he's running after things all the, all the time like the older brother. And he made a decision that he would come and look after one of the young people in that home. I think it was a young man who was brain damaged that he would um, get up in the morning, wash him, dress him, put him into his chair, feed him, take him outside into the sun, read to him, bring him in for lunch, bring him in in the evening again and bathe him and put him into bed. That's what he gave his life to. And I remember thinking, a portion of his life, I remember thinking as I read this, what a waste. I mean, this incredible gift to the church now, hidden away in this room with one small person that doesn't even understand what they're saying. This person will never become anybody. What a waste. And I felt like God said to me, you're using the wrong ruler again. You see, God decides what is value in eternity. And so we have to come to understand that our understanding is limited. And uh, we face difficult situations, and, and our prayer isn't always to be, God, get me out of this. Sometimes it is, but it isn't always to get me out of this. Sometimes it's the prayer of Mary or the prayer of Jesus, Lord, let your will be done. We get angry with God sometimes. We, we raise our fist at Him. Lord, how could you let this happen? Well, you, you could have stopped that. Why didn't you stop this? Why did that happen? And, we, and we, we actually become genuinely angry and furious with God. I know people that have walked away from God because of their anger towards God in these situations. Job was like this. Job was this righteous man. The Bible calls him the most righteous man on earth. And suddenly his life just turns into chaos. His, his, um, all of his children die which sucks. He, all of his wealth is gone. Everything's gone. Then he loses his health. He's got boils and sores all over his body. The only thing he has left is his wife. And I'm not sure Job would have kept that one out of the three that he was choosing there. Because his wife comes to him eventually. How's this for a loving wife? Baby, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job goes on through this book. He wrestles with his friends in this discussion that goes on and on. And basically what he's saying to them, this is the book of Job. He's saying, but I'm innocent. Honestly, I did nothing wrong. I don't deserve what's come upon me. If I could just have some one-on-one -on -one with God, if I could, and with an arbitrator, because, because it's impossible to argue against God. And he goes on like this. But if, if somebody could arbitrate between us, they would be able to show that I'm innocent. I don't deserve that. This is not right what is happening to me. And then God shows up in chapter whatever, right at the, towards the end of Job. After all of these conversations have gone on and on. And he doesn't come and say, Job, these are the reasons why I did this. I had a chat with Satan. I need to accomplish this. I've got this whole big plan. He doesn't say any of that. He just says, Job, Job, dear Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Did you measure out the perimeters of all of my creation? He speaks, he says to him, are you the ones that call the clouds out to bring the rain? Does the lightning come to you and say, we're here, where shall we go? And the answer is no. The lightning doesn't come to us and say, Rob, is, should I go and flash my stuff over the desert? Should I drop rain there or should I drop rain here? I, I love the fact that we live in a desert. It's one of those reminders with all the money in the world, we can't, we can't change the rain. If only the rain would fall here, but we can't. We're not in control. God is in control. Even to modern man, that's true. And so we have to accept what we cannot understand and change, knowing that a loving and just God is in charge and will bring His perfect will to pass in the end. Number two, we are not in control. The text that we read this morning, or read this afternoon, said in verse 29, 
Now they're at it again, speaking of all these wicked men. Take care of it. Take care of their threats. And so he's saying, can I just, where's, who's doing sound now? Just change the battery and then I'll get it back on again in a second. I'm, I feel like I'm doing that. Is it right? Um, and so they're saying that all these threats are taking place, but, I, but, but God, you take care of that. That's your part. And then he says this. He says, and they go on and say this, but give your servants fearless confidence in preaching your message. That's our part. There's some things we're in control of, and there's some things we're not in control of. And in fact, in our lives, there's more we're not in control of than we are in control of. And learning to follow God is learning to give over things to Him. One of the courses I did when I was a manager was um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I think, by Stephen Covey. And one of the things that stood out was his circles of influence. And he said this, you've got this the circle of influence that you have control or influence over. You can influence these things. Then there's another circle that you have very little influence, and then circles outside that you have no influence. And so, for example, if you're planning an event, and you know you, the weather's supposed to be really good, you've checked the weather, but on the day, there's these terrible storm clouds pass through, and it's raining, and it's going to ruin everything. You can't control the weather. You can't now go outside and scream at the clouds, ah, go away, clouds, whatever. You can do it. It's not going to do anything. And you can just... But you can have control of your attitude. Will you be angry and sullen? Will you give up and throw your toys out? Or will you make a plan? Will you move the thing inside or whatever it is? A few weeks ago, God gave me Mark 13, verse 7. And it, it speaks there. It says, Jesus, speaking of the end, says this. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. Why, why must it take place? Uh, we think today that mustn't take place. This no, God, there can be no wars. There can be no whatever goes on here. There'll be famines, uh, earthquakes. No, no, no. We don't want any of those things to take place. It's not, our, it's not our part. That's God's part to take care of that stuff. You take care of that, Lord. In verse 10, it goes on and says this, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations with the Holy Spirit empowering. That is our part. See, we... We can pray against the war in the Ukraine, but we cannot, we're not in control of that situation. We can pray against what's happening in Sri Lanka, but we are not in control of that situation. What we're praying is, God, your will be done. We, we know what His will is. We know His will is justice. We know His will is peace, and we can pray those things, but it's in His hands to take care of them. What we can do is we can go preach the gospel. We can, we can support. We can supply, etc. And the story of Joseph teaches us this lesson so clearly. We're not in control of our destiny. Joseph gets this incredible dream that God's going to use him for something amazing, that the dream of his mom and dad and all his brothers bowing before him is, is actually a dream of influence. God's saying to him, I'm going to lift you up to a place where you will have incredible influence for me. So it's a, it's a good dream. And Joseph, he's not evil. He understands this. He understands it in part anyway. But his, he thinks this is how it's going to work out. God's going to bring me there. So I'm going to go from this step to this step to this step. I'm going to get my own YouTube channel, and then I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and then woo, and then I'm going to have a Ferrari and drive around, and they can invite me to the United Nations, and I'm going to tell them how stupid they are, and what, 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 and like that. Instead, what happens is he's sold by his brothers into slavery. He ends up working for um, Potiphar, whose wife falsely accuses him, accuses him of raping her and goes to prison for rape that he didn't do. And then God brings him and makes him um, prime minister of that nation. And so we face things in our lives that we wouldn't want to put there. Sometimes we face things that are our fault. You make stupid decisions sometimes and you're going to reap the consequences. That's actually the easier situation. 
Because if you've made some stupid decisions, you can repent and start to work it backwards again. If you're in debt because you've been an idiot and bought stuff that you shouldn't be buying, you can make some good choices. Stop buying stuff. Stop being an idiot. Start paying off your debt. Soon you won't be in debt, and then you won't have this burden over your life. I want to say that to you, friends, that is a, that is a trap of the enemy to bring you into debt. Just You've got to get out of that, but that's, that's another thing. But sometimes things come away that are not our fault. Sometimes you, get, you end up with a child with learning disabilities. Sometimes you might have, um, you might, a, a child might die. These are not things that you would choose. They're not your choices. They're just incredibly difficult things that you have to somehow endure. What about if you're married to a difficult man or a difficult woman? Does the Bible say, oh, it's fine, just, just, you can just divorce that person? No, it doesn't. You've got, you got to endure it. You've got to figure out how to be the best wife or husband you can possibly be, how you can change the atmosphere and whatever. But, but that's your reality. What about singleness? What about people who've waited longer to get married than they ever dreamed they would have to, longing for that relationship of intimacy and communion but haven't found it yet? People battle with their sexuality. There are some strong Christians, one of my good friends, that battles with homosexual desire. He's not attracted to people of the opposite sex. He's attracted to people of the same sex. Um, but he's, that's his inner reality. And, and he didn't choose that. Friends, he, he, he knows it's wrong. He doesn't want it. He wishes it was something else. He's my age and he's been celibate his whole life because that's a journey that he's had to walk. Some people are assaulted sexually as children or even as adults. Some people are more prone to addictive behavior than other people. You see, we don't get to choose how God works it out in this fallen world that we live in. In his, in his love for us, he has stepped back from his sovereignty. He's not controlling every single situation. In his permissive world, there are things that are taking place in the brokenness of this world that are not his perfect will. But if we will trust him in the end, he will bring it to the place of his perfect will being done through it. Number three, God's promises are always true. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. I love Joseph because um, he has this guy. <laughs> he's, he's, uh, God's brought him in this really hard road, and now he's at the top of his game. Uh, he's prime minister of the land. He's, only Pharaoh has more power than him. He's, he's killing it now. But God's plan is being fulfilled because his brothers and his father are brought into um, Egypt to come and be cared for there. And then, um, but God's plan has always been that he would take Israel out of Egypt again. It was a promise that he made to them even when he brought them in. And Joseph understood that promise and holds on to it. And yes, what he does, he says before he dies, he says to his brothers, you pass this on to every generation that when God does take us out of here, because he's promised he will, you take my bones with you. Don't, don't, don't bury me here, bury me somewhere else. And more than 200 years later, some say 400 years later, when they're finally taken out of there, they carry his bones. And the book of Joshua records that they're buried in this place. Friends, God has given us promises and they will come to pass even if it's after we've passed. Some, some of us are praying for our children. You think, when will they turn to the Lord? Friends, keep praying until the last breath on your lips. They'll come to pass even after you've passed. But we need to hold on to what God has promised us. God has made promises over us generally. In his word, he speaks to us all the time. I had a man come beg at the door the other day of my car. He was asking for food. And I was saying to Linda after trying to understand this whole what's going on here in Dubai, how difficult it is. In most nations, when somebody's on the streets, 
If they really are desperate, there's probably a shelter they can go find. There's somewhere they can go and say, can I get a night or two? Yeah, can you? I'm willing. Will you help me get back on my feet? There's normally places that can happen. Here, there's nowhere. If you fall off, you've, you've fallen off. I don't know what, what this guy will do. I don't know where he sleeps. I don't know what he will eat or what he even have. He didn't speak a word of English. I couldn't figure it out from him. But friends, we have promises that God will provide for us. I'm absolutely convinced that God will supply the food that I need to eat and the clothes that I'll wear because he made that promise. He says, David writes and he says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or the children begging for bread. I'm not a prosperity gospel. I just know what the promises of God are for my life. I believe certain promises about my health. I believe promises about my marriage. I believe promises about my children. Those are our promises. But they're also promises that he's spoken to me specifically and to you specifically. Maybe they've come in prophetic words. Maybe rhema scriptures, you've read them. You need, to, you need to pull those promises out and remind God. They're yes in Christ. He's the one that gives the power for them to be fulfilled. But the amen is said through us. We say, so be it, Lord. And so we need to do that. We remind ourselves of the promises. And we remind God of the promises. Not because he's forgotten, but because promises are full fulfilled through transactions of faith. The only currency that heaven cares about is the currency of faith. And so the way that we receive our promises is by faith. And reminding God is an act of faith. God, I want to remind you that you promised me this. I'm reminding you today. I'm reminding you tomorrow. I'm going to remind you the next day, Lord. I'm going to be like that persistent widow banging at the door. If the unrighteous judge will give an answer to that request, how much quicker will the Father give the answer as we persist? Which leads me to my last point. That faith... (laughs) can't see it, but I'll be there soon. Oh, faith is proven when we stay the course. (laughs) I've written this down here. I said, faith is a thread that must be woven into the fabric of our lives if we're going to be able to live it well. It's like, if I had the shirt on but no buttons, it wouldn't be working in the way that a shirt should be working for a preacher. Do you know what I mean? There'd be more exposure going on here than anybody would be willing to bear. But it's a, it, it needs these buttons to complete the shirt. Our lives need faith to complete our lives. We cannot live a fruitful Christian life without faith. It has to be woven in there. In the Amplified Version of the Bible, they, they, you know they'll take like a word and they'll put like a whole sentence for the word. That's why it's amplified, to try and explain the original Greek. Because Greek has all these different nuances of meaning. And so sometimes it's more than just the faith value. And this is what they say about faith. It says like, you have faith. And then in brackets it says this. The leaning of your entire human personality on him in absolute trust and confidence in his power, his wisdom, and his goodness. The leaning of your entire personality, of your entire life, your decisions you make about marriage, about work, about what you will do with your body, about where you will spend your money, everything about you leans on him, depends upon him. And, um, and so God determines uh, or our relationship with God, a God we cannot see and a God that we cannot hear with these ears determines our decisions and our choices. And yet all around us we hear an opposite message. The, 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 the schools that we go to, the laws that are passed, the media, the politics around us tells us that your religion is a private matter. See, facts and science, that's what matters. That is, determines how we live together, how we interact with each other. Determines what gender is. Well, that's actually not even science. I don't know what's going on now. We've actually drifted beyond facts and science and some weird other stuff. But the, the idea started there. With, there's no absolute. What you're talking about is actually in the realm of feelings. And you can believe whatever you want. That's fine. But the way that we structure society and the way that things happen is going to be based upon facts and science. 
what you call your faith is merely feelings. And so it gets relegated. But not for us, friends. Not for us. You see, faith in Scripture is real life. The invisible realm is actually the, the, the most important realm. The scripture I'm going to read at the end shows that what we can see is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. And faith is simply recognizing what, is, what exists in the unseen realm. Faith is that God does exist, that God is on His throne, that God is in control, that God is good, that God acts on our behalf. That's what faith is. And that kind of living faith, and it's what God wants from us, is a living faith, not, not a theoretical faith, not like, um, you know, whatever. Like, I've got my, my statement of faith. I can, I can tell you what my statement of faith is. No, a living faith, a, a faith that flows from within us, that affects our everyday lives. That comes from a saving faith. And so Paul writes in Colossians 2, 6 and says, Therefore, as you receive Christ in the same way, therefore in the same way, with the same faith that you receive Christ as Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So this is what he's saying. Your roots have been now planted in Jesus. That's what happened when you were born again. Now use your roots, baby. Draw up from Christ, from that invisible realm that you planted into Draw up into uh, the faith that helps you to live. And what will God do with that? Well, He will write His redemptive story. He'll continue to write His redemptive story through your life. See, His redemptive narrative is His, it's his, his saving story that He started when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, and He's been writing ever since. He's written it through the lives of every single believer, and He wants to write it through your life as well. And He wrote it through the life of Joseph. And so when Joseph's brothers came to Him, now worrying because their father has just died. They're thinking, well, finally Joseph is going to get his revenge on us. And I can understand that. If my brothers had sold me into slavery and I had gone through what I had gone through, missed my, my mom died while I was separated from her, and finally my dad was gone, it would be time for some <laughs> happening amongst So they go and they make up this lie. Hey, dad said that actually you mustn't kill us, that you need to forgive us, and we can be your servants or whatever, but just don't kill us. And uh, Joseph says these amazing words. I think it's Genesis 49 when he says, what, what, what was meant for harm has been used for the saving of many lives. What the devil intends for harm, God's going to use to save many lives. You see, God's goal in Joseph was not to raise him up to be prime minister. His, he didn't look down on Joseph and say to, to um, Jesus, hey, Jesus, that Joseph guy, he's pretty good, eh? Did you see the results of his strength finders? I mean, he's killing it, and, he's, and his IQ is off the charts. We've got to do something with this dude. He's got such potential. We can't let him like, work in the desert. I mean, get, look through the CVs. Let's see what's God. And, okay, let's make him prime minister. God doesn't care about that stuff. He doesn't care about making him prime minister, whether he's prime minister or not. He cares about his saving story. And his plan from the beginning was that Israel would come into Egypt. You see, God would take this, this family, Jacob and his 12 sons, Joseph went on ahead of them to prepare the way. Because Joseph was there, they were able to be able to come live there. And Egypt became an incubator. It became a safe place where they were protected to actually grow. And the Bible says they grew in that place to a mighty nation. They grew to hundreds of thousands in the time that they were there, in the couple of hundred years. And then, as God predicted, they would be put under slavery. And even that was part of God's plan that he started in Joseph, that he would be able to come with his mighty hand and free them from there, as we read about in the Exodus. 
and that would become a picture of Christ coming to rescue us. And God in His miracles was preparing a people who would prepare a way for the Savior to come. And so what He was doing with Joseph had nothing to do with prime ministership, nothing to do with Joseph's potential, nothing to do with his IQ or the dream for his life. It had to do with God's dream for this planet. Same thing with the apostles. He didn't want to make them... He didn't want to make Peter the Pope in Jerusalem and give him the same power as the, the high priest had. He wasn't interested in that. He was interested in the gospel going out to the nations, and he would, he would use their lives for them. Every single one of those apostles, except for John, would die as a martyr for their faith, Peter being crucified upside down. And yet they pray, knowing what was coming, O oh Lord, hear their threats, and give us your servants great boldness in preaching your word. Our lives, friends are first and foremost, our lives are first and foremost fountains of redemption. And sometimes the sweetest waters flow from the cracks in the rock that come by opposition and injustice and hardship that we have to endure. Ask our Lord and Savior. God's goal in our life is always the display of His glory in eternity. And if we live for that, then we will see our glory revealed in His glory as well. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I want to read you a quote as they do. This is from a lady by the name of Margaret Clarkson. I don't know much about her. I know she's dead. She's with the Lord now. She wrote a book called So, I'm, so You Single, and uh, I read this, and it was striking for those that are single. I think it's a, an incredibly important reminder, but actually it's, it's not for the singles. It's for the singles and for the married. It's for the young and for the old. It's about living a life that's devoted to God even when it's difficult to live that life. So listen to what she says. She says, to no fault or choice of my own, I'm unable to express my sexuality in the beauty and intimacy of Christian marriage as God intended when he created me a sexual being in his own image. To seek to do this outside of marriage is by the clear teaching of Scripture to sin against God and against my own nature. As a committed Christian, then, I have no alternative but to live a life of voluntary celibacy. I must be chaste not only in body but in mind and spirit as well. Since I'm now in my 60s, I think that my experience of what this means is valid. I want to go on record as having proved that for those who are committed to do God's will, His commands are His enablings. My whole being cries out continually for something I may not have. My whole life must be lived in the context of this never-ceasing tension. My professional life, my social life, my personal life, my Christian life, all are subject to its constant and powerful pull. As a Christian, I have no choice but to obey God, cost what it may. I must trust Him to make it possible for me to honor Him in my singleness. That this is possible, a mighty cloud of witnesses will join me to attest. Multitudes of single Christians in every age and circumstance have proved Christ's or God's sufficiency in this matter. He has promised, and, and now take your mind of singleness and think about your life, and your situation. He has promised to meet our needs, and He honors His word. If we seek fulfillment in Him, we will find it. It may not be easy, but who said that Christian life was easy? The badge of Christ's discipleship was a cross. Why 
Why? Why must I live my life alone? I do not know. But Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. I believe in the sovereignty of God, and I accept my singleness from His hand. He could have ordered my life otherwise, but He has chosen not to do so. As a child, I must trust His love and wisdom. So years ago, um, thanks, buddy. Many years ago, Hannah turned 20 yesterday. So, so whatever it was, 22 years ago, the story unfolded. Seven years before that, we'd been trying to have children. So 30 years ago, Linda and I um, really wanted to start having children, something about that. And it was a deep desire. I mean, I've, uh, Linda loves kids. I've always, I've always known I wanted to be a dad. Do you know what I mean? Like that, like that I just knew, you know. And we were trying to have children and just, it never happened. The thing about, if you've gone through that, you know what I'm talking about. That struggle to have children is that it comes every month. So you're reminded it hasn't happened and it hasn't happened and it hasn't happened. And month follows month, follows month, follows month, follows month, follows year, follows year, follows year. It's this, this wearing down of your faith and your trust in God. And we had this, this desire, as I said, in us. We believed it was a God desire for us to have children. And I, I can remember the one day I was, I was driving to work and I can remember the exact spot where this was. The guy was in a, in a in what we call in South Africa, a bucky, a, like a van parked next to me at the traffic lights like this. And his little daughter, I don't know, three or four years old, was standing in the car and he was brushing her long hair like this, her blonde hair. And I remember crying in the car thinking, God, we want children, you know. And I'm a guy. It's half as hard for me as it was for Linda. It's her body that, that, uh, that every month was reminded that the baby wasn't coming. It was her deep maternal yearning that was not being fulfilled in this. And there were times where we came, like our faith was at its at rock bottom. There were moments where we thought, God, we just don't know if we can even trust you anymore because this thing has not come to pass, you know. But in the, the journey of life that we go through, this journey of faith that we, we go through like this, we, we come out of those valleys and we come into these moments, these these the mountains that we're able to see through the mist of, the, of all of our feelings and the things that are around us. And you, suddenly you can see again a little bit clearly, you know. We came to the place, Linda and I, where we, um, we said this to God. God, we, we believe that you've, you've promised us children. But even if you don't ever give us children, we are going to love you and we are going to worship you and we are going to obey you every step of the way. Nothing will change that. And then Linda prays a prayer to God. He says, God, please will you give me a child before I turn 30? And uh, June of the year came and Linda was turning 30 in, this, in the October. Clearly, we were not going to have, <laughs> have a child before she turns 30. And out of the blue, she gets a phone call from somebody that she used to work for, a social worker. Says a couple have come in and they've got this baby they want to give up for adoption. She said, I've got a list of people that, are, that have got their names down for adoption, but God drop your name in my heart. Would you consider it? So Linda phones me and says, Rob, Rob, this was happened. I said, No, baby, that's not God's best for us. I'm not settling for second. I want I want God's best. 
but I'll pray about it, I said. That has saved me so many times. When I, whatever your decision you make, put this at the end of it before you make your final decision, but I will pray about it. And I did. I was away lecturing. I prayed about it. And God took me to Psalm 27. And it says in there, today I've become your father. Today you've become my son. And I have this realization, this, this revelation that actually I'm adopted. What I'm, what's second best that I'm talking about? Second best, first best. God was at work here. And so we, we said yes. And God's miraculous wonder on the 17th of September, a month before Linda turned 30, Matthew was born and given to us. And so she did receive the child before she turned 30. About a year and a bit later, Linda falls pregnant with Hannah, who turned 20 yesterday. You know what? If, if we had already had Hannah, we would never have said yes to Matthew. And I, I don't know what God's plan is with Matthew. I, I've, um, I wish Matthew wasn't adopted. I wish he didn't have to face the reality of that challenge. He knows he is, obviously. I wish he didn't have to face the reality of what that means. And maybe you've been adopted and you understand what it means to wrestle through that reality. But I do see the hand of God at work in this. And he sees the hand of God at work in this thing. I want to say to you, friends, that sometimes with things that are happening in your lives, there are things happening that you don't understand. There are paths that you're going down that seem like... Where are you, God, in the midst of it? But actually, God's working out His perfect will. Sometimes it gets answered quickly. Sometimes it takes months. Sometimes years. Sometimes a lifetime. Sometimes in the next life we get the answer. But God's perfect will will be done through your life. And so what I'm asking you to do is to hold in one hand the sense of responsibility that you have to live this life of faith before God and, and mine the promises and bring them before God and contend for the promises. Maybe you've laid down promises. Pick them up again and begin to fight for them. And on the other hand, those things that are difficult and, and hard to get through, to trust God in His sovereignty that He is going to bring it to pass in His perfect way.